In the court of law, it's up to the jury to determine guilt or innocence based on the facts that have been presented. And some cases are more clear cut than others. So if the church were on trial, would it be able to live up to the claims it's made about itself? At the end of this trial, my hope is that we will not be found innocent, but my hope is that we will be found guilty as charged. Welcome to Simple Truths for Life with Charles Tapp. Here, we hope you'll find answers to some of life's everyday struggles. You can learn more by visiting simpletruthsforlife.org. For the next several weeks, you become the jury and Pastor Charles Tapp will be presenting the claims the church has made. Will you find it innocent or guilty of those claims? We begin with part one of The Church on Trial, Upon This Rock. I'm sure that many of you are familiar with the game that we call the word association game, where someone says a word and, and you respond by saying the first word that pops into your head. For instance, if I said dog, you would probably say what? Cat. Oh, you're a little slow this morning. I understand it's cold, it's early. So let's, let's just take a moment, let's just try it. I'm gonna say some words in no particular order, and the very first word I want you to say that comes to your mind, I want you to do this in unison. Are you ready? So if I said man, you would probably say what? If I said black, you would probably say? If I said rich, you would probably say? If I said poor, you would probably say me. I did this experiment with some of my students at Washington Adventist University, but here's the word that I gave them to ponder upon, and that is the word church. And I said to them, when I say the word church, I want you to say the first word that pops into your head. And, and many of them said some of the same words like worship or praise or prayer or sermon. Some were very honest. They said sleep and boring. And, but for the most part, they were pretty positive in their assessment of the church. But it seems as though everybody has his or her own idea of what the church should be all about. And as we know, one's perception ultimately becomes their reality. Today we begin our series, Church on Trial, and our goal for the next several weeks is to take a very in-depth look at the church and examine it in the reference of being innocent or guilty based on the claims that the church itself has made, but also based on the charges that have been brought against the church. Have you ever been part of a trial? I'm sure that most of our association with the legal system, especially when it comes to trials, has been when you receive that little notice in the mail that says you must report for jury duty. Now, I have never had the privilege or the opportunity to serve on a jury, although I have been called down several times to come, and that's when I pray the hardest the night before. 
that God will somehow intervene and exempt me from this process. And every single time, that is exactly what has happened. When you think about it, serving as a juror is an awesome responsibility because whether you and I realize it or not, whether we grasp it or not, we have the role of determining someone's guilt or innocence and it has been placed in our very hands. And how many times have we heard of cases where an individual was placed in prison, some for many years, most of their lives, only to discover way down the road that they were innocent, but spent most of their lives behind bars. In other words, the jury blew it. There was a miscarriage of justice and someone's life, an innocent life, was made to suffer. So the day as we begin our series, Church on Trial, and as strange as it may sound, at the end of this trial, my hope is that we will not be found innocent, but my hope is that we will be found guilty as charged. And as we begin our series, the big issue that is at hand here today is not what society thinks about the church. It is not what the culture feels about the church, but the real issue that we need to grapple with over these next several weeks is this. How does God see the church? Better yet, what does God expect of and from his church? I want to take you to the book of Matthew, and I want us to read just one verse. And that is verse 13. So turn there with me. Let's take a look at Matthew 16 and verse 13. Look at what God's word said. When Jesus came into the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples saying, who do men say that I, the son of man, am? And let me just give you a little background to this chapter. Jesus, if you read the early part of Matthew 16, has some serious concerns as to how his disciples had perceived him. When you read verse 1, we are told that the, the religious elite, the Pharisees and, and Sadducees, came to Jesus saying, listen, show us a sign from heaven. In, the word, in other words, give us proof from God Almighty that you are who you claim to be, the Son of God. And Jesus, of course, denies the request and says simply, the only sign that you will ever give or receive will be the sign of the prophet Jonas. And the Bible says, then he walked away. But when you look at verses 6 to 12 of Matthew 16, Jesus begins to have a very interesting conversation with his disciples, and his purpose for doing so is to discover just how much, if any, these religious leaders' way of thinking had rubbed off on the 12, on the disciples. So he says to them, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and they thought that Jesus was talking about literal bread probably because right before this in the previous section, the previous chapter, Jesus had just fed over 5,000 men and women and children with 
a few loaves of bread. So when Jesus said, beware of their leaven, they thought he was talking about literal bread. But he lets them know that he's not talking about bread, but he was talking about beware of their teaching. Beware of their doctrines. Be, beware of their traditions. And in verse 13, Jesus wants to know just how much of the doctrine that the 12 had been exposed to. So he said, listen, who do men say I, the son of man, is? And they began to say, well, some say you are Jeremiah. Some say that you are Elijah. Some say that you are a prophet. Some say that you're just a good man. Some even probably say you're John the Baptist coming back from the dead. But in verse 15, Jesus presents his disciples with the question that has been asked of every disciple from every age of every dispensation. And he said, but who do you say that I am? Not who do men say that I am, but Jesus says, who do you say that I am? And isn't that the question that all of us really needs to ask of ourselves today? Not what the world is saying, not what the culture is saying, not what society feels, but who do you say Jesus is? Not what some commentator says, not what you can find on Google, but the real reality that all of us need to come to grips with today as the church, who do we say Jesus is to us? And I love, I love Peter's response. Say what you want to say about Peter. You know, we give Peter a hard time. You know, we laugh at Peter because he spoke sometimes without thinking. When's the last time you did that? We're hard on Peter because, you know, he walked on the water for a while, but then he took his eyes off Jesus and he fell into the water. How many of you ever walked on water? Raise your hand. Oh, okay. But I love Peter's response to the question, but who do you say that I am? Peter said, you are the Christ. You are the anointed one. You are the mature. You are the son of the living God. In other words, Peter was saying, you're the one we've been expecting. You're the one we've been looking for. You're the one we've placed all our hopes on. You're the real McCoy. You're the real deal. And there's no need for us to look for another. And what I find very significant about Peter's response when he said, you are the Christ, you are the man, is that just a little while after that, after he denied Jesus, someone came to him and said, you are the man. How could Peter go from recognizing Christ to be the son of God to being ridiculed and having a finger pointed at him and said, but you are the man, not you are the son of God, but you are the one who turned your back on the son of God. So I find that very interesting, the language that he uses. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. Let's pick up this story in Matthew 16, 17 and verse 18. Jesus answered, Simon Barjona, flesh and blood, has not revealed this unto you. But my Father who is where? In what? Heaven. And I also say to you that you are Peter. And on this rock I will build my church. And the gates of Hades of hell shall not prevail against it. What does Jesus mean here? 
Let me take you back to school. Let me show you how this reads in the Greek. In the Greek, the word for church is ekklesia. It is the noun, which means church. The verb ekklesiazo means to summon. That's where this word ekklesia comes from, to summon or to call, which has its roots in the Old Testament Hebrew word gahal, which is, occurs over 123 times in Scripture in the Old Testament, and it always refers to a group or assembly that has been called from one place to another. There is no religious meaning attached to this word gahal. So the roots of the word church in the Old Testament have to do with a gathering an assembly of any kind. But when it was translated from the Hebrew to the Greek in the Septuagint, they used the verb ekklesiazo, which means to summon or to call this group, which we get our word today, ekklesia, which is Greek for church. So what is Jesus saying here? He's simply saying this, that I am calling a people to me. I'm extending to them an invitation to become a part of my group. Not the world's group, not another leader's group, but my group. And Jesus says, and this gathering will be built upon this rock. For you are Peter, and upon this rock, I will build my what? Church. His name was Simon. Jesus changed his name to Peter, which in the Greek means what? Rock. Petros. But when Jesus said, but upon this rock, I will build my church, it is not the word Petros, which stands for Peter. It is the word Petra, which stands for rock or a strong foundation. So when Jesus said in verse 18, you are Peter, Petros, a rock, a movable rock, but upon this rock, Petra, I'm going to build my church. So in essence, Jesus is not saying, as many believe today, that I'm going to build my church on an unstable rock like Peter. But what he was saying was, I'm going to build my church on the revelation that this unstable rock Peter had that I am the Christ, that I am the son of the living God, that I am who I claim to be. And on this rock, Petra, I'm going to build my church. Jesus wanted to make it perfectly clear, Peter, you may be a rock, but I'm not going to build my church on you. I'm going to build my church on the Petra, the foundation of what you said, that I am the Christ, the Son of the living God. You're listening to Simple Truths for Life with Charles Tapp and part one of The Church on Trial, Upon This Rock. And if you're enjoying this message or you'd like to find others like it, you can find out more by visiting simpletruthsforlife.org. We'll conclude with the rest of his message right after this. 
Man, when I think about WGTS, I think about family, and uh, WGTS lifts me up. The whole crew has truly been a blessing in my life, and um, I'm forever grateful for WGTS and what they do for myself and for the community. We are Your support makes a difference. I always uh, encourage people, like, you want to listen to something, be encouraged when you're going through a tough time, starting at 91.9, um, they're definitely up with the spirits. And uh, especially in the trying time we're in right now in society. Working together to impact the nation's capital. We are family. And I am forever grateful for, for the WGS family because that's exactly what it is, family. And we get to be a part of that as listeners, which is, is amazing. Listener funded. WGTS 91.9. Always encouraging. At 88.3 on the Eastern Shore. This is Simple Truths for Life. And this week... The church goes on trial, and Charles Tapp presents the claims the church has made about itself. Will you find it innocent or guilty? Well, let's return to the rest of his message, Upon This Rock. There was a man I met several years ago when I was pastoring. He had come into church for quite some time, and he finally came to me and said, Pastor, I am, I'm ready to be baptized. He said, but I only have one issue that I'm grappling with. I'm thinking maybe it's some habit that he's dealing with, you know, something he can grow out of, grow in Christ through. So I said, what's your issue? What's your concern? He said, my concern is I don't believe Jesus is the son of God. I said, that's more than a little problem. That's more than a little rock. For as Jesus said to Peter, it is the very foundation of this group that I'm going to call to myself. I'm not just the one who builds this. I'm the foundation that this group will be built upon. Although Jesus makes it clear that this group is made up of those who call to accept him as the Christ, it also refers here to anyone from any age that has accepted God by faith. So those great men and women of the Old Testament, they were part of the church. As a matter of fact, the church began, the first church began in the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve comprised the first church. They comprised the first gathering. They comprised the first community of God. Simply put, the church is the community of believers from all time. Jesus makes it clear that the church, this this God-ordained, this God-empowered community is not built upon any human or upon any human ideas or tradition, but its foundation lies in the authenticity of the claim that Jesus made that he was and is the Son of God. Which means then, this is God's church. And if it's God's church, listen to what I'm about to tell you today. If this is God's church, it means there is no black church. There is no white church. There is no Hispanic church. There is no Asian church. For when God looks at his church, all God sees are those who have responded to the invitation to come and assemble and to be part of his community. To come out of the world with all this apparent contradictions and to place themselves under his allegiance so that they can be part of the kingdom of God. You know, the disciples one day asked Jesus, you know, where is the kingdom? When is it coming? Jesus said, you've missed the point. He said, the kingdom of God is within you. 
In other words, you've got the choice to decide whether or not to place yourself under my rule, under my allegiance, because that's what the word kingdom here means. It means rulership. So the kingdom of God is in me, it's in you, it's for us to decide whether we're going to respond to the call to become part of God's church, not a black church, not a white church, not a red church, not a brown church, God's church. Here's something that we must understand. Just because you and I may be part of a church doesn't necessarily mean we're part of the kingdom of God. You see, the kingdom of God has two dimensions. There's the visible aspect of the church that you and I see as believers. We see one another. This is the church. But then there is the invisible aspect of the church, the kingdom of God. That's what God sees alone. And I love what Paul said to young Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 19. He says, listen, the Lord knows who are his. And this is the lesson that Jesus was trying to teach his followers in the parable of the wheat and the tares. Let's take a moment and let's look at this parable in Matthew chapter 13, verses 24 to 29. Another parable he put forth to them saying, the kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed what kind of seed? Good seed in his field. But while men slept, his enemy came and sowed what? Tares among the wheat and went about his way. But when the grain had sprouted and produced the crop, then the tares also appeared. So the servants of the owner came and said to him, Sir, did you not sow seed in your field? How does it have tares? He said to them, an enemy has done this. The servant said to him, do you want us then to go and do what? Gather them up, talking about the what? Tares? But he said, no, lest while you gather up the tares, you also uproot the wheat with them. If you read this in the original language, it makes a whole lot more sense. For the word for tear is the word darnel. It is a, a wheat-looking like plant. And it takes almost an expert to distinguish between what is real wheat and what is tear or darnel. And that's what Jesus is saying when it comes to my kingdom. Jesus is saying, listen, when it comes to those who make up my group, my assembly, you don't really know who's part of the kingdom. Only I know that. Because you look on the outward appearance, but I look upon the heart. So your job is not to go picking out the tares. Because you may leave some tares behind and pull out some wheat. Because you and I judge by our senses. God judges by his, what's in our heart. And because this is God's church, you and I need to be very careful how we treat the members of his church. How dare the church look at some of its members and say, you're not equal to the rest. How dare the church? This isn't our church. This is God's church. 
And Jesus says, anybody of any race, of any gender, of any socioeconomic background who decides to respond to the invitation and to be part of this church that I build and I'm the foundation, they should be a part of my church. Better yet, they make up now the kingdom of God. So how dare you say that because they're a woman, they can't have all the rights as everyone else in the body? How dare you say because their skin is a different hue that they can't have the same rights as everyone else that makes up the body? How dare you, church, say that you can decide who's part of the kingdom and who's not? How dare you? The apostle Paul made it clear in Galatians 1 verse 3. He says that once you're in Christ, once you're part of this community, There is no Jew nor Greek, no bond nor free, no male nor female anymore. Paul isn't being naive. Don't miss the point. Paul isn't saying that once you become part of the kingdom of God, you join this church, that you have to lose your identity. No, that's not what Paul is saying at all. But Paul is saying these things that we use against one another, once you become a part of the kingdom of God, they no longer should separate us. There's no advantage of being this and there's no disadvantage of being that. Why? Because it's my church and they're responding to my call. You see, the primary purpose for establishing the church, this assembly together, is so that we can be an extension of God here on this earth. And there are three main reasons why God established his church. Number one, to bring glory and honor to himself. The second purpose for God establishing his church on this earth is so that we could build one another up who are in the body of believers already. And that's where many times we fall short. We'll bring people into the church and then we bring them in and we go, well, now you got to fend for yourself. No. My church is not built on a man. My church is built on the revelation of a man that you are the Christ. I want to close now with going back to this rock imagery again. I want to do so with a question. If Jesus changed Simon's name to Petros, which means rock. But he never intended on Peter being the head or the foundation of the church. Then why change his name in the first place? Let's let Peter answer that for himself. First Peter chapter two, verses four and verse to verse six. Peter says, coming to him as to a living stone, talking about Christ. Rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and what? Precious. You also, Peter says, as living stones are being built up a spiritual what? House. Don't miss that. He says you're stones that are building, you're part of a house, a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through what? Jesus Christ. Therefore, it is also contained in the scripture. Behold, I lay in Zion a what? Chief cornerstone talking about Jesus. That's the foundation. Elect precious. And he who believes on him by no means be put to shame. What does Peter say? Peter says, I understand why Jesus changed my name 
from Simon to Petros, which means rock. Not that I'm going to be the foundation that the church was going to be built upon, but anybody who understands that Christ is the Son of God becomes a living rock, a living stone that makes up the church. You see, you need a foundation, but you can't have a building with just the foundation. You need some stones. And Jesus was simply telling Peter, you won't be the foundation, but you'll be one of the stones that are built on the foundation. But not just you, Peter, but anybody who accepts the invitation to come out of the world and assemble in my group, they will be the stones that make up the church. All God wants to know is who will be his living stones? Who will allow their lives to be built on that rock to become this church? Not a building, not an institution, but a community that can change the world. You've been listening to Simple Truths for Life with Charles Tapp and part one of The Church on Trial, Upon This Rock. And if you wanna listen again or share it with someone, You can find these messages on platforms like Apple Podcasts and now also on Spotify or visit us online at simpletruthsforlife.org. Now here's what we're working on for next week. When you think about it, there's probably no other word in all of human language that is as misunderstood and abused as this word love. What does it mean to love? Next week, we have another powerful message from Pastor Tapp lined up that asks whether the world knows the people, the church, by our love. As he shares his message, the love church. Well, thanks for listening, and we hope you'll plan to join us again next week for more Simple Truths for Life.